0: That's called the motivation. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in the Buddhist qualities, such as wisdom and compassion, as qualities that we want to develop ourselves. But we also take refuge in the Buddhist qualities as beings who are going to experience those qualities in the sense that
1: the Buddha developed great compassion and we are included in his compassion.
0: And so to understand this and to uh, let ourselves open and receive the Buddha's compassion. I think it's quite important in our practice to Really think of the Buddha's love and compassion for us, and to relax our mind and
1: stop blocking the reception of that love and compassion. So that
0: we, so that our mind can relax into the uh, feeling of being assured that there are these ca- compassionate beings who care for us and our welfare and who want to help us on the path so we're not alone in practicing and by feeling the support of the holy beings who really want us to be successful on the path and that helps us to stop struggling so much. And when we stop struggling, we're just more open and receptive in general. And our meditation is more open and receptive. So more understanding comes. More feeling of relaxing, and the Dharma comes. So let's remember the quality of the the Buddha's quality of compassion. Let our mind rest in that. And then approach the Dharma with enthusiasm and the wish to become like the Buddha, especially by developing the altruism and compassion that he has. all living beings and seeking enlightenment for that purpose sometimes our mind makes dharma practice into an incredible battle. It's like the Civil War, the Battle of the Bulge, you know, Hiroshima. (laughs) It gets pretty darn chaotic and violent inside uh, with all these topsy-turvy thoughts and emotions. And I think it's very helpful to really think of uh, the Buddha at that time and recollect the Buddha's qualities and especially the Buddha's compassion and really see that we're part we are the objects of the Buddha's compassion. It's not like the Buddha developed compassion for everybody else but me. I know we all want to be special but sorry. You know. The Buddha's compassion also includes us. And so to stop you know, making everything so tight and into such a battle and recognize that, you know, there's zillions of Buddhas and zillions of bodhisattvas and they all have more compassion for us than we have for ourselves, which isn't hard to have. (laughs) Sometimes we're pretty darn hard on ourselves. But, um, you know... They really have these good wishes and compassion and affection for us. And so to understand that and to let that in, okay, instead of, feeling, you know, I'm practicing the Dharma and I'm sitting here. Sometimes, I, you know, this image of, you know, like a warhead, this kind of metal casing, you know, and here I am, this upright warhead inside this metal casing with a pointed top and it's, steel all the way around I'm sitting in here trying to practice the Dharma
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know that's what we're like sometimes you know I was
0: just like wait a minute remember the Buddha's compassion for us you know the Buddha isn't making us in, into a battle why do we why should we you know, the Buddha attained enlightenment for our benefit and has been sending out this compassion for eons. Why don't we just like turn the radio on so that the, the waves can come in? Yeah?
1: Why are we like, yeah. I don't want
0: any compassion, I'm fine!
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, who are we kidding? It's like compassion is what we all want, isn't it? And so if we open our mind to feel the Buddha's compassion, it can help us be more patient and tolerant and have more compassion for others, as well as for ourselves, okay? So don't make the Buddha's compassion something intellectual, but really experience it and feel it and know it's there. I went through a, a period in my practice and I felt so lonely and I just wanted somebody to hug me. And of course, you know, my nun, I can't go around and say,
1: oh, somebody to hug me.
0: <laughs> so I used to imagine Chen Resi with all thousand arms hugging me. You know, and I just, thought, oh, how would that feel to sit there and have Chen Resi with all thousand arms hug me? And I just imagined that and, that fulfilled my emotional need to be hugged,
1: mm-hmm. you know? You kind of open yourself to that. Okay. I just wanted
0: to talk a little bit first about, um, you know, because we're talking about exploring monastic life, and particularly in their... What's important is the uh, higher training in ethical conduct. You know, as we're seeing, monastic life isn't just about that particular higher training. It also involves bodhicitta, higher training in concentration, higher training in wisdom. But the precepts are contained within the higher training of uh, ethical conduct. And that is, of the three higher trainings, it's the first one, Okay? And uh, it's the first one because that's the one that helps us get balance in our life. When we have good ethical conduct, then our actions are balanced and they're refined. When we don't have good ethical conduct, our actions of body and speech are just all over the place. You know, and we, all of our negative energy just kind of goes out verbally and Physically, and of course, boomerangs back on us. But when we have good ethical conduct, you know, then it, it's indicative of the mind becoming more peaceful because we have to subdue the mind in order to subdue the body and speech. And then our actions become more peaceful as well. Okay? When our actions are more peaceful, then we have less regret. We have less guilt. Because why do we have guilt and regret and remorse? It's usually over things that we've done that we haven't felt good about. Okay? So when we keep good ethical conduct, then we don't have so much interference from guilt and remorse and so on. And so that makes it much easier to develop concentration in our meditation. No. Because guilt and remorse are a big distraction, aren't they? Mm. So that's why we do lots of purification practices. At the beginning of our practice is to clear all that stuff out—not all of it, but at least some of it. Get a handle on it, and uh, so that sets the stage for developing concentration. When we have concentration, then the then the uh, the very gross afflictions are are temporarily suppressed or subdued. They aren't eliminated, but you know they're they're suppressed and here it doesn't mean suppressed like psychological suppression it just means that they're they're not like boiling water you know they don't come in the mind in a manifest way and then that gives you the space more space to develop wisdom and then it's with wisdom that we actually cut the root of the afflictions okay so the you know wisdom is the actual thing that removes the afflictions that gaining wisdom depends on having some concentration in which the afflictions are more subdued and not so prominent, and gaining that concentration depends on having um, ethical conduct. And you'll see in all of our practices, you know, whether you're thinking on the level of Vinaya and the Prati Moksha, there we have ethical conduct in the form of The uh, various, the eight kinds of uh, Pratimoksha vows. Uh, Then, when you're practicing Bodhisattva path, you have the Bodhisattva ethical conduct in the form of the Bodhisattva vow, and the major, the uh, root and auxiliary Bodhisattva precepts. And then, when you practice Vajrayana or Tantrayana, you have ethical conduct in the form of the root and auxiliary Tantric vows and also in the form of the pledges to the five dhyani buddhas okay so ethical conduct permeates the the whole practice you know and there's different levels of ethical conduct Um, but it really sets the stage for everything that comes after that so it's important to understand that you know, pratimoksha, moksha bodhisattva, and vajrayana, ethical conduct, there are three different levels of ethical conduct. When you take one, you know, when you take, uh, uh, let's say, one of the prati-moksha vows, you don't automatically have the bodhisattva or vajrayana vows. Okay, you take them. First you take on some level the prati-moksha vows, then you take the bodhisattva vows, then after that you take the vajrayana vows. Oh, so you can progress slowly and gradually in these. You know, but there are different sets of precepts. The Pradimoksha precepts have to do with physical and verbal actions. In the Bodhisattva and Vajrayana uh, precepts, they have also to do with the mind. So you can transgress them just by the mind without saying or doing anything. But with the prati-moksha vows, Precepts—you actually have to do something or say something to have a a transgression. Yeah, but of course, to prevent transgressions, you have to control your mind because the mind is the source of what the body and speech do. Okay, so there's eight kinds of prati-noksha precepts. You have um, the bhikshu and bhikshuni precepts. That's the fully ordained. ones for male and female. And so that's when you become an actual, you know, full member of the Sangha. Then you have the uh, novice precepts, or so shramanera, shramanerika, again for male and female. And those are the ten precepts. The Tibetans uh, have divided them into 36, and I've asked how they got that list, where it came from, and I haven't been able to get an answer. But, all the traditions, actually, I think when you take the, the ordination, say the ten precepts. Okay? Um, for women, between the mm-hmm. shamanerika and the Vikshuni precept, there's another ordination called the Shikshamana, or nun in training, okay? Or uh, probationary nun. Okay? And that's a two-year one in which you... Uh, Actually, the six Samana precepts for the different Vinaya traditions can vary quite a lot. Okay. In the Dharma, Guptaka, and the Pali, they're, they're basically uh, six of, the, of your Shamanarika precepts, but you're practicing them in a, in a more detailed way. Okay. Then, um, then you have the Upasaka, Upasika, so that's male and female uh, lay, person, so that's somebody who's taken refuge, and um, and some are all of the, the precepts, okay, the five day precepts, and then you also have the one day, eight precepts, but like I said, that's not, that's similar to the eight Mahayana precepts, but it's not the same, because pradhimosa ordination has to be taken on the basis of a a uh, motivation of renunciation and the determination to be free, to to be liberated, whereas the eight mafayana precepts you take with the motivation of bodhicitta. They're kind of different there. Okay, so those are the eight kinds of, of the Pratimoksha ordinations. When, when do the eight, one day eight precepts, when do people do that? Is
1: that people who... Okay. So
0: when do people take the, the one-day eight precepts? Well, that, you know, and not the Mahayana mm-hmm. precepts. For example, the people in the Theravada tradition, they don't have the eight Mahayana precepts. So when they come, they'll come to the temple on mm-hmm. moon full moon days and they'll take the eight precepts, okay? Or the Anagarika vow, you know, those mm-hmm. are the eight Pradhimoksha, mm-hmm. lay precepts, mm-hmm. Okay. Any questions so far maybe any of that? Okay. Um, so, we've been going through our story here of the Buddha's enlightenment and subduing um, the foe of fault. Okay. Uh, and we uh, completed... What did we discuss last time? That was... Uh, that was how he went we discussed last time how he went through the jhanas and attained the three the three, um, the three uh, du- you know direct knowledges at the end at the three levels of the night the recollection of, um, of uh, his own lives the ability to see the passing away and rebirth of all sentient beings and then the knowledge and insight that his own afflictions had been or have been removed. So now we're going to come back to sutra in the Majjhima Nikaya, sutra so number twenty-six, which was the Noble Search, the one that we started out with. And so here we're coming into the section on enlightenment. So I'll just read this this part. It will tie in with what we had at the beginning. Then, bhikshu, then monastics, being myself subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, seeking the unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana, I attained the unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana. And then he went through the same, you know, being myself subject to aging, okay, seeking nirvana and attaining it. And then the same for sickness, for death, for um, sorrow and for defilement. Okay, so it's repeated the, the, um, the thing. Okay, so uh, I attain the undefiled supreme security from bondage, nirvana. The knowledge and vision arose in me. My deliverance is unshakable. This is my last birth. Now there is no renewal of being. Okay, so according to the, to the Pali scriptures, The Buddha was born as a bodhisattva, still under the influence of afflictions and karma, and then attained enlightenment in that life. And so that's why he says, you know, this is my last birth in samsara, and there's no more becoming. So that link of of becoming in the 12 links, which is the ripening of the karma, just as you're about ready to take birth, there's no more of that. Okay? In the Mahayana scheme, Shakyamuni Buddha was enlightened eons ago and <coughs> manifest in this way as a way to um, show us the the way to practice ourselves. Yeah. but he did this as a as an emanation body, uh, you know, acting that that out, not because he he was really you know needed to do all those things. Um, When I uh, received ordination in Taiwan, the temple I was at had a, um, they had the pictures of the twelve deeds of the Buddha, uh, you know, some around around the outside of the temple. So it's quite a large temple. So when you circumambulate it, you can look at, you know, uh, pictures of all the twelve deeds of the Buddha. And it's quite inspiring, you know, because thinking about the Buddha's life can become a whole meditation in itself because you really see the Buddha as showing an example through how he lived of what we need to do. Mm -hmm. So I used to do that because at lunchtime the Chinese monasteries are very, very strict. And, you know, when you're supposed to be doing something, you better be doing that. So I don't like to sleep in the afternoon, but, you know, they wanted us to take a nap in the afternoon. So I had to lie down because they would come through and make sure we were all in our, in our dorm rooms. Um, and so I'd have to lie down. And, uh, you know, I came checking us. And, and then sometimes I would kind of get up a little early and I'd go out and I would circumambulate the temple and just look at the, the scenes of the Twelve uh, Deeds of the Buddha and contemplate them. I found it very, very inspiring. But I had to time it right.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so now the Buddha considers, uh, Buddha continues, I considered this dharma that I have attained is profound, hard to see, and hard to understand peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning. In other words, you have to actually experience it. Subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. Okay, so what he had realized is so precious and sublime and he's looking around thinking, who will understand me? And saying everybody around me just likes worldliness. And by worldliness, it means, you know, the sense objects, as well as, so not only the objects, but especially the craving mind of craving and attachment. Um, and not only to sense objects, but just this whole mind that, you know, I want, I want, whatever it is, okay? So it is hard for such a generation to see this truth. Yeah, because your mind's wrapped up in seeking happiness outside. You can't understand the Dharma so well. Okay, it's hard for this generation to see this truth, namely specific conditionality, dependent origination. So dependent arising is one of the truths that he wants to teach. And it is hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving dispassion, cessation, nirvana. So it's hard to, for beings to understand nirvana, to understand selflessness. If I were to teach the Dharma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Thereupon, there came to me spontaneously these stanzas never heard before. Enough with teaching the Dharma that even I found hard to reach for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate those died in lust wrapped in darkness will never discern this untrue dharma which goes against the worldly stream subtle deep and difficult to see okay so the is thinking you know I work so hard nobody's going to understand me why should I exhaust myself? Hmm. Hmm? Hmm. Normal human emotion. But you might wonder, but the Buddha worked so hard to become enlightened for the benefit of sentient beings. How come he's having mm-hmm. this kind of thing right now? Okay. Well, just wait. <laughs> Considering thus, my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Then monastics, the Brahma Sahampati knew with his mind the thought in my mind, and he considered, the world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata, accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to an action rather than to teaching the Dhamma. This Brahma, you know, this is one of the gods in the... Brahma realm realizes, like, what a loss it will be for the world if the Buddha doesn't teach. So, what does he do? Then, just as quickly as a strong person might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm, the Brahma Sahampati vanished in the Brahma world and reappeared before me. Okay. He arranged his upper robe on one shoulder and extending his hands in reverential salutation towards me, said, Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One teach the Dharma. Let the Sublime One teach the Dharma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dharma. There will be those who will understand the Dharma. So he's encouraging the Buddha. Okay, The Brahma Sahampati spoke thus, And then he said further, In Magadha, that's the area where the Buddha was, In Magadha there have appeared till now impure teachings devised by those still stained. Open the doors to the deathless. In other words, nirvana. Let them hear the Dharma that the stainless one has found. Just as one who stands on a mountain peak can see below the people all around, So, O wise one, all-seeing sage Ascend the palace of the Dharma Let the sorrowless one survey this human breed Engulfed in sorrow, overcome by birth and old age So he's appealing to the Buddha's compassion Arise, victorious hero, caravan leader, debtless one And wander in the world Let the blessed one teach the Dharma there will be those who will understand. And the Buddha continues. Then I listened to the Brahma's pleading and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of the Buddha. Surveying the world with the eye of the Buddha, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes. Okay. It means little few uh, obscurations Okay, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes with keen faculties, with dull faculties in other words people who have very sharp faculties who can actualize the Dharma quickly, those who are more obscured, more obtuse who, that will take them longer beings with good qualities and with bad qualities Easy to teach and hard to teach. And some who dwelt seeing fear and blame and in the other world. Okay? So some who dwelt seeing fear and blame and in the other world. Now we hear the words fear and we hear the word blame and we don't want anything to do with it. Okay? What this means... Okay, those who dwell seeing fear. This is a wisdom kind of fear, seeing the disadvantages. Okay, so it's like you know when you, when you have really strong ethical conduct, you have a wisdom fear of being mindless and and you know acting whatever kind of way. So we're not talking about neurotic fear here. Okay, blame. What blame means here is uh, unwholesome actions, negative actions. Okay? So what is blameworthy? Okay, what is blameworthy by the wise? Okay. What is it that wise people do not do? The, The unwholesome actions, the destructive actions. So that's what blame here. Seeing fear and blame, meaning being concerned about doing non-virtuous actions, that will lead us to a painful life. So they have fear and blame, and they have fear in the other world. In other words, they realize that their actions are going to create the causes for what they'll become in a future life, and they care about that. They're concerned about that. They aren't just brushing away what happens in the future saying, oh, I only know what happens now and that's all I care about. But recognizing that the mind just doesn't stop, it continues. So they have concern about that. Okay. Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water Thrive immersed in the water without rising out of it. And some other lotuses that are born and grow in the water rest on the water's surface. And some other lotuses that are born and grow in the water rise out of the water and stand clear, unwetted by it. So too, surveying the world with the eye of a Buddha, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good qualities and with bad qualities, easy to teach and hard to teach, and some who dwelt seeing fear and blame and in the other world. Mm-hmm. Then I replied to the Brahma Sahampati instanzas, Open for them are the doors to the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahma, I did not speak the Dharma, subtle and sublime. Then the Brahma, Sahampati, thought, I have created the opportunity for the Blessed One to teach the Dharma. And after paying homage to me, keeping me on his right side, he thereupon departed at once. I went back to the Brahma realm. So why, if the Buddha got enlightened with the motivation of Bodhicitta did he think not to teach and why did the Brahma Sahampati come and request him?
1: He just we
0: need to request Okay, it's showing that we need to request teachings. You
3: didn't think anyone would you know, listen to him or understand or that he could even to kill him, mm-hmm.
0: But he's a fully enlightened one, wouldn't he? Know that there were beings.
1: So why, why this whole thing? Yeah. Also, this by that it, so okay.
0: Yeah, definitely benefits this Brahman by making the request.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is like he would. Yeah. Understood in his enlightenment that this would be a common feeling. Um, I I won't teach because people won't understand, and then he's modeling to go ahead and do it. To not to mm-hmm. trust that there are some people who. Can mm-hmm.
0: see your so you're thinking that in, that the Buddha's thinking that in the future there might be people, people, people.
1: think this discouraged way. Yeah,
0: who think in a discouraged way about something virtuous. Yeah. And he's showing the example in his own actions of overcoming that discouragement and going ahead and doing the virtuous yeah. action anyway.
3: Yeah. Mhm. Just thinking that in Buddhism in general is one of our main things to, you know, proselytize. Mhm. And so you can wait for that to be requested and mm-hmm. such so yeah. carried on today. Yeah.
0: Should not proselytizing letting people come. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of all of these things. Basically, it's, um, if the Buddha had gotten enlightened and came out and said, here I am, I'm going to teach you, everybody would just take it for granted, wouldn't they? And all the future generations, here we are, 25, 2600 years later, you know, oh yeah, Buddha got enlightened, then he came and taught, you know, and we just take it for granted Oh, yeah, the Buddha's my servant. He walks around India for 45 years teaching. You know, we, we're, we sometimes really take things for granted, don't we? But when we consider that, you know, from our perspective, that the Buddha almost didn't teach, and then we think, wow, what would happen to me if the Buddha hadn't taught? Where would I be without the Dharma, you know? And spend a meditation or two or three or ten thinking where just this life, forget future lives, start out with just this life. What would this life be if you hadn't met the Dharma? What would this life be if there were no Dharma in this world for you to hear? Okay. So Spend a session on that and then think, what about future lives? What about my liberation and enlightenment? Where would I be if the Buddha hadn't taught? What would my future life be if I couldn't learn the Dharma in this life? What are my chances for liberation and enlightenment if the Buddha hadn't taught the Dharma? And see it in the big picture of our continuing cycling in samsara, one rebirth after the next after the next. And where would we be if the... Buddha had decided not to teach. Yeah, so that reflection is something very important for us and very powerful for us, you know. And it makes us appreciate the teachings, and it pulls us out of our complacency, and really helps us to see the Buddha's kindness, and then also the kindness of this Brahma, who, you know, knowing that there's all sorts of people like us went and made this request to the Buddha. Now, of course, the Buddha never thought not to teach the Dharma. But, you know, making it so that a Brahma had to come and request, and for us to think that the Buddha almost didn't teach, that helps us in our practice. Okay. And also because people at that time really respected Brahma, and the fact that Brahma requested the Buddha to teach made people think, oh, this is an important teaching. Yeah? It's like, you know, if Jesus went to the Buddha and asked him to teach, or Obama went to the Buddha and
1: asked him to <laughs> teach,
0: you know, <laughs> or whoever it is you admire, you know, if, uh, I don't know, Michael Jackson went to the Buddha and asked him to teach, <laughs> you know, people might, might pay attention a little bit more. Okay, mm-hmm. so this was done for our benefit because we have obscurations. Mm. So the B- Buddha con- uh, continues, I considered thus, to whom should I first teach the Dharma? Who will understand the Dharma quickly? Who could that be? Who's it going to go to? Okay. It then occurred to me, Alara Kal- Kalama is wise, intelligent, and discerning. You remember Alara Kal- Kalama, his first teacher. He has, he has long had little dust in his eyes. Suppose I taught the Dharma first to Alara Kalama. He will understand it quickly. Then deities approached me and said, Venerable Sir, Alara Kalama died seven days ago. And the knowledge and vision arose in me. Alara Kalama died seven days ago. I thought, Alara Kalama? Kalama's loss is a great one. If he had heard this Dharma, he would have understood it quickly. So think from the perspective of Alara Kalama. Here you were, you know, you knew the Bodhisattva before he became a Buddha. You knew this being who was going to become a Buddha. You had a strong karmic connection with him. Yeah? But then, one week before he attains enlightenment, you die. Yeah. So you have the spiritual urge, you have some realization, but you have, you don't have the dharma to, to really become liberated. And the person who can show you, who wants to teach you, is there and wants to teach you and is ready to come, but you die before they can come. Hmm? So that's something for us too, isn't it? You know? I considered thus, to whom should I first teach the Dharma? Who will understand this Dharma quickly? It then occurred to me, Udaka Ramaputta, remember him? Second teacher? Udaka Ramaputta is wise, intelligent, and discerning. He has long had little dust in his eyes. Suppose I taught the Dharma first to Udaka Ramaputta, he will understand it quickly. Then deities approached me and said, Venerable Sir, Udaka Ramaputta died last night. And the knowledge and vision arose in me. Udaka Ramaputta died last night. I thought Udaka Ramaputta's loss is a great one. If he had heard this dharma, he would have understood it quickly. So again, so close. So close. But the Buddha not giving up. I considered thus, to whom should I first teach this dharma? Who will understand this dharma quickly? It then occurred to me, the bhikkhus, of the, the, bhikshus, the monastics of the group of five who attended upon me while I was engaged in my striving, were very helpful. So remember when he had gone to do his six years of ascetic practices, he was with five friends. You know, they all practiced ascetic practices together. I think they had kind of counted on Gotama to get enlightened first and help them out. But they practiced together. And then when the Buddha, when he was still Bodhisattva, said, you know, doing all these ascetic practices is not changing my mind. I need to start eating again. And he went and he had the, the rice, you know, pudding. And then he crossed the river and went under the Bodhi tree, all of his old friends denounced him and said, you're such a wimp, you're such a softy, you know, you're eating. What kind of <laughs> renunciate are you? You're eating food. <laughs> you yeah. know, they were just disillusioned with him and, you know. But the Buddha didn't abandon him. He thinks, so suppose I taught the Dharma first to them. Then I thought, where are the bhikkhus of the group of five now living? And with the divine eye, remember that clarifying power to see mm-hmm. things, which is purified and surpasses the human, I saw that they were living at Banaras in the deer park at Isipatana. Mm-hmm. Okay? So some of us have been to deer park. It's the site of where the Buddha gave the first teaching. So he saw that his five comrades are there. Then monastics, when I had stayed in Uruvela as long as I chose, I set out to wander by stages to Benares between, uh, between Gaia and the place of enlightenment. Okay, so between Bogaya and Gaia. It's about, uh, how long does it, I forget now. Maybe half an hour, hour in a car. The uh, Jivaka Upaka, so one person, saw me on the road, and said, Friend, your faculties are clear. The color of your skin is pure and bright. Under whom have you gone forth, friend? Who is your teacher? Whose dharma do uh, do you profess? So, you know, this man saw there's something special about the Buddha. He's like really radiant and glowing and everything. And I replied to the Ajivaka Upaka in stanzas, I am one who has transcended all, a knower of all, unsullied among all things, renouncing all, by craving ceasing freed, having known this all for myself, to whom should I point as a teacher? So, of course, he had teachers in the previous life, that in this life he went through showing this example of doing it on his own in this life. I have no teacher, and one like me exists nowhere in all the world, with all its gods, because I have no person for my counterpart. I am the accomplished one in the world, I am the teacher supreme, I alone am a fully enlightened one, whose fires are quenched and extinguished. I go now to the city of Kasi to set in motion the wheel of Dharma, in a world that has become blind, I go to beat the drum of the deathless. And then, uh, the Ajivaka Upaka replies, by your claims friend, you ought to be the universal victor. In other words, a special Tathagata. The victors are those like me. Oh yeah, okay, so he just, so, uh, he just said, by your claims friend, you ought to be the universal victor. And then the Buddha replied, the victors are those like me who have won to destruction of taints. I have vanquished all evil states. Therefore, Upaka, I am a victor. When this was said, the Jivaka Upaka said, May it be so, friend. Shaking his head, he took a bypath and departed. <laughs> so he saw that there was something special there, but it's like he couldn't, you know... Either humble himself enough or do whatever needed to be done. He just took the bypath and went on his way. Then, monastics wandering by stages, I eventually came to Benares, to the deer part at Isipatana, and I approached the bhikshus of the group of five. The bhikshus saw me coming in the distance, and they agreed upon themselves thus. Okay, so they had a little pact among themselves when they saw Gotama coming. Friends, here come the recluse Gotama, who lives luxuriously, who gave up his striving and reverted to luxury. We should not pay homage to him, or rise up for him, or receive his bowl and outer robe. But a seat may be prepared for him. If he likes, he may sit down. So they're like, you know, completely out to lunch, thinking, you know, he's a softy. he has nothing to say, nothing to offer. Talk about preconceptions that are detrimental to the mind. However, as I approached, these bhikshus found themselves unable to keep their pact. <laughs> One came to meet me and took my bowl and outer robe. Another prepared a seat, and another set out water for my feet. However, they addressed me by the name, by name, and as friend. So they addressed him in a very informal way. But kind of automatically, they found themselves showing the signs of respect. Okay, so taking his bowl, taking his outer robe, preparing a seat, offering him water. Okay, thereupon I told them, Vikshus, do not address the Tathagata by name and as friend. The Tathagata is an accomplished one, a fully enlightened one. Listen, Vikshus, the deathless has been attained. I shall instruct you, I shall teach you the Dharma. Practicing as you are instructed by realizing for yourselves here and now, through direct knowledge, you will soon enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into the homeless. So he's saying, you know, I was your friend, but I'm the Tathagata now. So listen, and I will give you the instructions. And if you practice according to the instructions, then you too can achieve the purpose of the holy life, the whole reason why you gave up worldly Pleasures and uh, became a wanderer. Now, you might wonder, you know, why is the Buddha stating so explicitly here, I'm the accomplished one, I'm the Tathagata, Mm -hmm. you know? Because it it even comes in the Pradimoksha precepts that we're not supposed to talk about our attainments and all. Well, I think the Buddha must be an exception of some sort. (laughs) Yeah. Because most people, when they talk about their attainments, to get fame or wealth or offerings or something like this. And the Buddha, I think, was doing this out of compassion for the people around him so that they would stop and think and hopefully recognize his qualities. He wasn't seeking fame or offerings or, or whatever. But, you know, since the time of the Buddha, I mean, the rest of the people who go around. We have so many people claiming to be enlightened these days, don't we? You know, you look in any New Age newspaper and they'll happily teach you for 99 99 Special <laughs> price for you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, th- this kind of thing is not to be relied on. But I guess at the time of the Buddha, when you had somebody like the Buddha, he proclaimed it. But at the same time, he encouraged people to really think about his teachings and to test them, like you test gold, okay, by uh, rubbing and cutting and burning it to really see if it's pure, not to, just to take it. Okay. When this was said, the bhikkhus of the group of five answered me thus, "Friend Gotama, they're still calling him friend." Uh, friend Gotama, by the conduct, the practice, and the performance of austerities that you undertook, you did not achieve any superhuman states, any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. So, you know, you did, by the conduct and practice and all the austerities, you didn't attain any realization. You know, you didn't attain any of the jhanas, you didn't realize nirvana, you know, you didn't do any of these things. Since you now live luxuriously, having given up your striving and reverted to luxury, how have you achieved any superhuman states, any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones? So remember, you know, at the time of the Buddha, people really thought you gained the realizations by torturing the body, and that's how you conquer the attachment. So if you didn't do it, if you didn't get realizations when you were practicing austerities, you're living in the lap of luxury now. You know, how are you going to do, attain any realizations now? When this was said, I told them, the Tathagata does not live luxuriously. I mean, he's still a wanderer with his bowl and his robe, you know. The Tathagata does not live luxuriously, nor has he given up his striving and reverted to luxury. Okay, The Tathagata is an accomplished one, a fully enlightened one. Listen, monastics, the deathless has been attained. And then he repeats that passage. The deathless has been attained. I shall instruct you. I shall teach you the Dharma, practicing as you are instructed by realizing for yourselves here and now, through direct knowledge, you will soon enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness. Repeat it again. But that, they're a little bit dense. Okay? <laughs> a second time, the bhikkhus of the group of five said to me, Friend Gotama, and this whole thing about, you know, you flaked out and you're living in the lap of luxury, you haven't attained any superhuman powers. So, you know, how have you attained any superhuman powers now if, you know, if you didn't attain them when you were doing the ascetic practices? And for a second time, then the Buddha explained that Tathagata doesn't live luxuriously. He didn't give up his striving, you know, listen to what I'm teaching. And if you listen, you'll be able to attain nirvana, which is the goal of, you know, the holy life. Okay, so he said it a second time. When this was said, oh, and he said it a third time, this whole thing went another time too. Okay. These guys are pretty dense. Yeah, Buddha really had to... I mean, imagine the, the patience he must have had to repeat himself this many times. You know. When this was said, I asked them, shoes, have you ever known me to speak like this before? No, venerable sir. Um, <laughs> Big shoes. the Tathagata is an accomplished one, a fully enlightened one. Listen, um, Bhikshus, the deathless has been attained. I shall instruct you. I shall teach you the Dharma, practicing as you were instructed, for by realizing for yourselves here and now through direct knowledge, you will soon enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homeless. I was able to convince the bhikshus of the group of five. <laughs> oh. Then I sometimes instructed the two bhikshus while the, three, uh, while the other three went for alms, okay? Because some had to go for alms and then he would instruct some. And the six of us lived on what those three bhikshus brought back from their alms round. Sometimes I instructed three bhikshus while the other two went for alms and the six of us lived, lived on what those two bhikshus brought back from their alms round. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then the bhikshus of the group of five thus taught and instructed by me, being themselves subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, seeking the unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana, attained the unborn supreme security for bondage, nirvana, and then so on through the same passage, through aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and lamentation. Okay. And the knowledge and vision arose in them. Our deliverance is unshakable. This is our last rebirth. There is no renewal of being. Any questions so far? So what he what he taught them was uh, the Four Noble Truths, which is another sutra. It's, it's recorded in the, I think in the uh, Long Discourses of the Buddha. I think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're in on this one. I can't remember. Sorry, I should know this. Okay, then the Buddha goes on and he talks about sense pleasure. Okay? And he says, because there are these five chords of sense pleasure, what are the five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. And then the same thing about sounds. Sounds. And lust here doesn't mean just sexual lust. It means just the mind-seeking, you know, sense stimuli. It's looking for something outside of it. So it says the same thing for sounds, odors, flavors, tastes. Okay, those are the five chords of sense pleasure. As to those recluses and brahmins who are tied to these five chords of sense pleasure... Infatuated with them and utterly committed to them, and who use them without seeing the danger in them or understanding the escape from them. Okay, so whether they, you know, ordinary beings see enjoying just you know sense pleasure, and and not just the, you know just nice smell, sound, taste, and touch, but you know everything we make up based on that, like. If I have money, I am successful. If I have this diploma, I am smart. If uh, somebody likes me, I am, you know, worthwhile. If I have this job, then you know, I'm competent. All these other things that that you know are are make up our very very complex personality. You know that we're that is, we're very hung up on now. I mean, it could be that maybe in previous centuries you know people were just trying to stay alive and the five senses you know were just there and this whole thing about praise and reputation and I mean it was still big there wherever you have human beings it's big but you know we have such complicated minds now sometimes you know money isn't just something that you use to buy something. Money is indicative of your social standing, of your value as a human being, whether you're successful, whether people will love you, whether you have freedom, whether you have power, you know. And so, of course, money was indicative of those things before, but this was, in this particular culture, they didn't really use money a whole lot. Money was just starting to come about. Of course, people had wealth and, you know, people were looked at that way, but we're like so plugged in now to all this kind of stuff and so super sensitive about how we appear and if we're competent, if we're worthy, you know, all this kind of Complicated stuff we have. Okay, so it includes all of that in here. So they don't see the danger in that, or they don't see the escape also from the five uh, objects of the five senses. So escape here doesn't mean running away, you know, because you're, you can't face up to it, but you don't see an escape from the craving, and you see that the craving keeps you bound in cyclic existence so for the beings like that it may be understood of them they have met with calamity met with disaster the evil one this is Mara okay Mara is one um, mythological figure <laughs> or you know they say he was born in one of the god realms of some sort but he was always you know kind of what do they call the anti-hero or you know Antagonist. He always came and made problems for people. Basically, Mara represents ignorance and craving. Okay. So the evil no one may do with them as he likes. Suppose a forest deer who was bound lay down on a heap of snares. It might be understood of him he has met with calamity, met with disaster. The hunter can do with him as he likes. And when the hunter comes, he cannot go where he wants. So too, as these recluses and brahmins who are tied to these five cords of sensual pleasure, etc., cetera, etc., it may be understood of them: they have met with calamity and met with disaster. The evil one may do with them as he likes. Okay, so the Buddha is really stressing to his five disciples: you know, all these sense pleasures that the whole world is infatuated with. It's like a deer, you know, who is uh, bound in a bunch of snares and just trapped there and he can't get up, he can't go anywhere. The hunter comes, you know, and what can the poor deer do? He has no power. So too, you know, when our mind is completely under the influence of the afflictions, especially of attachment then, you know, we're giving up our power because it's like... And we can see, can't we? When we're really attached to something, it's like we have a ring through our nose and the object of attachment leads us, you know, around.
1: We can see it, can't we? Yeah? So,
0: this is not saying attachment is bad, and it's not saying we're bad people because we have attachment. Okay? What the Buddha is saying is, you want to be happy. This is keeping you enslaved. And he's saying, let me teach you the Dharma so you can free yourself from this. And so he's saying this to us out of compassion, not because, you know, he wants to rub it in that we're bad, worthless people because we have attachment. I mean, come on. If we were bad, worthless people because we have attachment, do you think the Buddha would bother teaching us the Dharma? As to those recluses and brahmins who are not tied to these five chords of sensual pleasure, who are not infatuated with them or utterly committed to them, who use them seeing the danger in them and understanding the escape from them. So you see these, these recluses and brahmins who see the danger and understand, you know, that they want to be free of them. They still use these things. Yeah. You still have to eat. You still need a house. You still need a bed of some sort. You still need some kind of clothes. Okay. So you use those things because we have a body. But it may be understood of them. They have not met with calamity, not met with disaster. The evil one cannot do with them as he likes. Suppose a forest deer who was unbound lay down on a heap of snares. It might be understood of him. He has not met with calamity and not met with disaster. The hunter cannot do with him as he likes. And when the hunter comes, he can go where he wants. So the snares are like the sense objects. He may lie down, but because he's not bound, he can get up and go. So you can use the sense objects and then you're not bound by craving to them. So two... Uh, as these recluses and Brahmins who are not tied to the five chords of sensual pleasure, etc., etc., the evil one cannot do with them as he pleases. Okay. Okay, and then he goes on, the Buddha goes on, to talk about attaining the, um, the four jhanas. Okay and attaining actually he's talking about here attaining infinite space infinite consciousness infinite and the base of nothingness and how that that is uh, like having blindfolded Mara and become invisible to Mara but you're still not out of it okay so the Buddha's really saying you know you have to to, to really be out of it, you have to generate the wisdom that cuts off the tapes. And so such a one who has done that, um, he walks without fear, stands without fear, sits without fear, lies down without fear. Why is that? Because he is out of the evil one's range. Okay. So Mara craving ignorance, can't take you and throw you into another rebirth okay questions comments yeah
3: Yeah, when they talk about being enlightened um, and describe the enlightenment process they sounded pretty much the same as the Mm hmm yeah but I find that strange because they must acknowledge the difference between the two even in the therapeutic yeah
0: okay so the description of the Buddhist attainment of enlightenment sounded, or the, of the arhat sounded just like the Buddha's, but surely there must be a difference, even in the Theravada tradition of the Buddhist capabilities. Yes, there is. Um, they generally say that the liberation is the same. See, in the Mahayana, they, don't, they wouldn't say that. But the Theravada would say that the liberation, being an arhat, is the same, but... The Buddha also developed all these other powers. You know, he, he has all the super normal powers. And he also is one of the few Buddhas who turned the wheel of Dharma in an historical era where the Dharma was not yet present. So they say that the Buddha has more capacity... Uh, you know, because although some of the arhats have all these supernormal powers too, but they they would say that the Buddha has more capacity to teach the Dharma and to guide uh, sentient beings in a time when uh, the Dharma hasn't yet appeared. That's what what you hear, but then. You know when you start getting into how the bodhisattva practice is described in the Theravada tradition, and it is there in the scriptures. Not so much in the in the Nikayas, in in um, like the Majjhima Nikaya, in the Kuda Nikaya. The, you know it talks more about uh, the Bodhi, you know the Buddha as a bodhisattva who who attained enlightenment, and there. The, um, one of the things is uh, the Buddha having accomplished the paramis, which is the Pali term for paramitas. Mm-hmm. And they say that even the arhats and the solitary realizers would also practice the paramis, but to a lesser degree, to a lesser extent. And the Buddha, because he accumulated so much merit and, and really brought these, um, the ten paramis to perfection. Therefore, he has more ability to be a benefit.
1: But it is
0: curious how in the uh, Pali Canon that none of the disciples ever thought, Oh, maybe I can become a Buddha and ask the Buddha how he did it. You know, it's mm-hmm. a curious thing, that that never happened happen as the canon is recorded now. You know, maybe something was edited out or edited in or something like that.
1: I don't know. Yeah? Um, I'm really curious and confused about Mara. So (laughs) does Mara have... Was Mara a sentient being with Buddha nature? Okay. (laughs) was, Was Mara like Buddha's enemy? So you know, the way we're to look at enemies, like they end up teaching you. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: so, so who, who's this dude, Mara? Okay, well, the way Mara is portrayed in the scriptures as is as if he were, I think he's like one of the, in some God realm or another, but he's always trying to foil practitioners and uh, get them involved in samsara again. And so in that way, he's kind of like, you know, he doesn't cooperate with the Buddha very much, and is always trying to stir up trouble. But if you see it in in another way, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's 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 like looking at two aspects of our mind. Well, well, okay. Well, first, let's not see it in that other way. Let's see it, continue seeing him as a sentient being. Yes, he has Buddha nature. Yeah. Everybody has Buddha nature. Okay. Yes, they all have Buddha. He has Buddha nature, but he just has this karma whereby he's creating so many problems and loves stirring up problems. Okay. In another way, if you kind of step back, you can see it as, you know, a kind of role that you would be expected. You know, like in our own mind, when we have a really virtuous mind, then sometimes our ego throws a fit. Okay. So like, on the night before the Buddha's enlightenment, while well, he was meditating, first Mara sent down um, hordes of armies you know, to make the Buddha frightened and angry and upset. And the Buddha instead uh, transformed their weapons into flowers. And it rained down. Then Mara sent down all of his, da- his daughters who were flirting with the Buddha and walking around very seductively to try and distract him. And the Buddha turned them into old hags and then, what was the last thing that Mara sent down?
3: He told him he was uh, not qualified.
0: He told him he was not qualified?
3: And then the earth Yeah,
0: and then the Buddha touched the earth and, and the earth goddess came and, and uh, testified to his realization. Okay, so that's just kind of showing like how our mind works, you know? Could be understood on a symbolic level as well
1: about um mm-hmm. in the sutra about mindfulness of breathing, mm-hmm. which I think that Theravada practitioners believe that like the Buddha, too, and, like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they say that's what he did that night, in that sutra it brings you through those um, Formless realm meditations, mm-hmm. which is
0: kind of odd if those don't bring you wisdom. Yeah, actually, at the, at the end of this one too, was in
1: there too. Yeah, it was
0: at the end of this one too, saying that he attained, you know, the peak of neither perception or non-perception. And but then, as I understand it, then what you would have to do is come out of that meditation, mm-hmm. so that you wouldn't be in it, mm-hmm. and then reflect on that state. As being impermanent, as still in the nature of suffering, mm-hmm. and as selfless. Mm-hmm. So while you're in that state of concentration, you can't attain mm-hmm. enlightenment. But even though you've attained that level, if you come out of it, then you have the ability to do the analysis mm-hmm. and reflect mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. I
1: have a question about the guidelines. Mm-hmm. they're so, um, the way they're characterized in the long run, sense pleasure and everybody's totally drunk with that and there's no possibility for the drama but in truth it seems like gods play lots of roles in coming down and intervening and providing information Mm -hmm.
0: yeah okay so the god realms you know the long sounds like they're all drunk on sense pleasure but here we see they're actually performing some important roles there's different kinds of gods there's the god realms that are in the desire realm then there's the gods in the form realm, the gods in the formless realm. The gods in the desire realm are the ones who are d- drunk on sense pleasure. Okay, they're the ones who they live long lives, but a week before they die, their body becomes old and their flowers wilt, and their friends don't want to talk to them, and they're abandoned, and it's very excruciatingly painful for them. Those are the gods in the sense, in the desire realm. In, in, for example, in this sutra, the sutra, that Brahma um, was not one of those gods. He was from the Brahma realm. He was in the form realm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then of course there's the gods in the formless realm. So the ones in the form realm seem to be these ones who come and intercede and you know play an important role because they were also the ones that the people at the at that time worshipped. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they say, you know, like the people worship Brahma as the creator, the God that created the universe. And the Buddhists just incorporated Brahma into their cosmology, saying that when the universe evolved, the first realm to appear was the God realm. So Brahma was there by himself and then since all the other realms evolved later on, he thought he created them. Mm-hmm. And all the and all the other beings thought he created them too, because he was there first. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, but the the sense pleasure gods—they don't play quite as as much of a role. You do see uh, those sometimes, like uh, in Atchamman's biography, some of the, the the gods of the desire realm. You know, those who were more refined would come and and listen to the dharma. You know? and where did the
1: Davis come in? Because you was the Davis had told him that two teachers yeah. were dead, for example.
0: Yeah. Here. Right. So, though, which de- devas those were, I don't know. You but know.
1: where do they fall in the... In the, well, they, the, the what deva. we translate
0: as God is the Sanskrit word deva, which refers to the gods of the desire, form, yeah. and formless. So it doesn't tell you which level mm-hmm. they're from. Hmm? Hmm? Um, when you spoke about the five
3: sense words, mm. yeah. how do we... Didn't refer to the mental faculty and how it can become yeah and like of bliss or and just ideas. yeah well
0: if he didn't refer to the jhanic bliss because he was seeing that as part of the path to to actualize because it refreshes your mind and then also through gaining the jhanas, you can develop uh, insight so he, he didn't talk about that but how come he didn't get he didn't talk about getting lost in your thoughts and ruminating like we do. Um, it could be because uh, in that society the people were more directed towards the actual physical creature comfort It could be that. Or it could be because where do all of these thoughts that, we, that tumble around in our head have their source? They all come back to... Sensual contact, don't they? You know, if you're sitting there worrying about, you know, am I good enough so that somebody's going to go out with me? You know, that thought wouldn't occur if you didn't have objects of of the of smell, you know, of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Okay.
3: It seemed though that the audience he was speaking to was the aesthetics. Yeah. Quite. Fighting against that side, but could have at the same time been quite indulgent in like mm-hmm. mental aspects of like, mm-hmm. well. Like for mm-hmm. example, it sounds like they're quite prideful mm-hmm. and they're quite full of that, and it yeah. sounds like that's a major issue. For that. Mm-hmm.
0: Then, so why didn't he point yeah, that
3: out? He like I mean, it was pretty clear yeah. when he said, you know, quite clear that I'm the pride yeah. listen, Yeah. That sounded like kind of pointing it out, but yeah.
0: Yeah, I, do, I don't know why he he did that. There's certainly other places in in the scriptures where he talks about arrogance and conceit and those kinds of things, you know. But here, perhaps it was that he really wanted to emphasize sense pleasure as as one of the principal distractions.
3: Did ask Talked about that after they attained,
0: Yeah. Yeah, it seems. Well, they, they got realizations in different levels, you know. I think there was after even one of the first teachings, one of them attained stream enterer, but then some of the other ones that took them a few more teachings. But in this sutra, it sounds like he's teaching them over a period of time, you know. But then he can still emphasize that, can't he? You know, because he's also saying it for people like us who are going to come later. Hmm. Okay. Due to this yet and
1: they
2: Attain the enlightened state of guru
1: That we may be able to liberate All sentient beings from their suffering May the
0: precious bodhi mind Not yet point their eyes and grow May the
1: point of no
0: decline but increase for us.